Hi, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Wherever you are right now, take a look around you. Let your eyes rest on the first thing that catches your attention. For me, while writing this, it, it's a bowl in Big Think's offices. Highly polished, assembled, it seems, from curved, stained strips of wood. If I kept going, I might get to a particular wooden coffee table of my childhood, its reassuring warmth and sturdiness, how I turned it into a fort and camped out under there watching Saturday Night Live, all the abuse it took over the years from me and my sister without complaint, and how unaware and ungrateful we were for its patient suffering. My guest today, Norwegian author Carl Ove Nauskar, has taken this kind of unflinching observation, association, and insight to a level few of us can imagine doing, writing first a six-volume series about his life and world called My Struggle, which he followed with a seasonal series of vignettes. The newest book, Winter, has short meditations on everything from toothbrushes to owls to alcoholism, and it's one of the wisest, saddest, and most beautiful things I've ever had the pleasure of reading. Welcome to Think Again, Carl Ove. Oh, thank you. So for, you know, American readers, uh, I mean, our audience is all over the world, I guess, um, but largely in America, Australia, um, English-speaking countries, they may mostly be familiar with my struggle. And so I thought we might start by talking about what are some of the differences for you between the writing of my struggle and the kind of writing that you're doing here in the seasonal series, which I guess you've finished at this point, but we're, we're now on the second book in English. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, my struggle was to me very, very intimate and very personal. And it is very much about, you know, the interior life of a person, which is, which is me. Uh, and every relation I, you know, have with people, everything is uh, is explored somehow. Um, because yeah. I wanted to somehow um, find out how I became the one I am. You know what 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 made me, uh, and I needed like three thousand pages to to do that. Um, and it was, <laughs> and then it was extremely hard to do. Um, you know, so much soul searching and so much self pitting and so much all of the bad stuff that I had to go through to writing this book. And when yeah. I have done that, I wanted to do something completely different. And instead of looking inwards, I started to look outwards. You know, to the world, to the things, to the objects in the world, without psychology, without you know turmoil, just the things in themselves that was the plan but then of course uh if you immerse in something you immerse yourself uh, and, and you, you you use yourself and you s so there is a kind of introspection in just looking at things too but it is less um it is less about me and more about the world then i think i read winter and then i went and read book one of my struggle which i hadn't read before and uh I mean, for you as a writer, how how is it now writing these very sort of short vignettes? I mean, formally speaking, like in terms of the process of writing, how is it how is it different for you, or how was it different? 
is uh, I think it is almost exactly the opposite. I mean, a novel you write and you there is an ongoing process. The thinking process is going on, is changing, you know, during weeks and months, and you can come to places, but it's all like one very very slow movement that, that you dip into every day. These texts were done in right. one sitting. So I got up very early in the morning okay. uh, and I spent maybe, you know, an hour just to pick today's subject, today's uh, object. And when I've done that, I wrote it in one sitting for like two hours. And that was it. That was the text. And I did so throughout the year. Gotcha. Uh, it's, it's very different, you know, um, mode of thinking. and and and. But at the same time, it is also based upon movement. You start somewhere, you don't know where this is going to end. And and just by writing, you 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 go somewhere and you end up some you know someplace completely different than you started. So it's kind of a miniature novel as well, all of these texts. And there is another difference, which is um the accumulation of text to something in itself, you know. It's like one text says something, two texts says something, but then if you have a hundred texts, it says something different that you couldn't, you know, foreseen when you started. Right, and I suppose there are narrative connections that Im that are happening for you as the writer, so that every time you sit down to write another vignette, you're still in some unconscious way being informed by the previous pieces, maybe without, yeah, without knowing it. Well, one thing is that the form, you could say something in one form. There is something you can say and a lot of things you can't say. And if you have a different form, it is, you can just say something else, you know, and, and, and so you get a lot of, you know, for free when choosing a form. It's like the form comes with a view and with a way of thinking in itself. And it's almost like you just apply that form to the world and something will, you know, be visible. So this book, right. for instance, I never given any thought to the way we, you know, structure the world in a hierarchy. You know, some things are valuable, something are less valuable, something are shit, something, you know. And yeah. this, this, the, the, that kind of evaluation we do constantly, nonstop, every day without giving it a think at all, you know. But when I wrote this book, I was kind of becoming aware of that. And I tried to give as much attention to, you know, vomit as I do to love. Or, or any of the big things and small things. And I try to make that hierarchy uh, erase it somehow. Because you do erase, or you do want to erase uh, hierarchy in the social structures, you know, that you could see and that you right. can relate sure. to and you want to change. But you never want to change the hierarchy in the world and <laughs> in the way we see the world. And that is, you know, because we form the world, we shape the world, we make the world. I mean, with all these things and objects, we we make it into what it is in if you could imagine a, 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 to see the world without a, a, a consciousness you know it would be meaningless mean, mean, meaning nothing mm. but when we see the world it's full of meaning i wrote about toothbrush you know and i thought it was meaningless but then right. no layer upon layer upon layer of meaning Okay, so this is interesting, right? I mean, so when you first said that you were trying to erase hierarchy, I thought to myself, well, in so much of your writing, I can feel this push and this desire for for meaning. I mean, you are you are looking into the world for meaning. So when I thought when you said I'm trying to erase hierarchy, 
I initially went to thought that that was going toward a kind of nihilism where sort of no meaning was more meaningful than another. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying that that all things can equally be a window into deep meaning. Yeah. And it is kind of we who decide that, you know, the way the the, the, the one who looks at the world much more than the world in right. itself. And these things, you know, it's not like it's conscious in the book and it's not like I'm writing about it, but it's more like the consequences of this writing. And another thing that's consequences of the writing is that the difference between the body and the, the, the bodily, you know, um, fingers or teeth or hair or whatever I'm writing about starts to become objects in their own right, like things in the world, you know, they'll kind of become materiality much more uh, and the, the 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 borders between the body and the world is kind of opening up uh, i mean if you hear something it is so uh, uh, technical so materialistic so uh, mechanic in a way you know uh, you have this little stone in the air that is kind of rolling and to keep you in balance somehow and it is like you know it's like a, a stone in, in the forest and you have the teeth which is like uh, a fence of, of stones. It's opening up the, the, the body as a world in itself and to see the connections with other phenomenons in the world and other things and objects in the world. And you see there is no uniqueness to, to us and to other things. Both in, both in my struggle and, and in uh, winter, I feel you looking into the world and I feel, I feel you finding like v very powerful, almost... I, don't, I mean, religious is not the right word. Spiritual is not the right word. Poetic is too weak, but some resonance beneath things. And I see you not wanting to necessarily draw any grand conclusions about what that is, but it seems like that's where you want to live. And that's, you know, that, that somehow in, in spite of not coming to any grand conclusion about the goodness in the world or what is truth or or whatever the, the world is still very rich with meaning for you yeah or not in itself uh i mean i, I feel very often very close from the world very much closed in on myself and my own thoughts so writing is a way for me to break out of myself and it is also a way of, of not giving the world meaning but finding meaning in, in the world. So, I mean, I don't notice anything when I'm out walking somewhere, but when I'm writing about it, it is like it is possible to open it up and to see to see things. And it's right, it's, it's always meaning I'm, I'm looking for. Uh, so it's, a, it's a basically a very existential right. thing for me. And, and, I, and I can't really imagine a life without writing or without reading. Yeah, so it's a powerful personal act for you, which is obvious in, in the writing. Because you're writing, um, and we're reading it in translation, but it still is unlike anything else that I can directly re relate it to that I can remember reading, I think this would be a good point for us to hear a little bit of one of, one of the pieces from Winter. Um, and for the audience, this one is just about owls. Uh, it begins with... A lot of talk about the um, a, a lot of talk is is not the right way to put it. It begins with um, it begins with the 
impression, visual impression owls make on us, and then out the meaning owls have had in Western culture. Yeah, this is after all the meaning that you could, you know, bring out of an owl. The owl is nothing other than this, a soundless and highly effective bird of prey. If the true task of poetry is revelation, this is what it should reveal, that reality is what it is, that the forest with it, its dense spruces and its snow-covered floor is real, that the falling dusk is real, that the owl taking off from the branch and flying across the field is real, that its soundless wing beats are real, that invisible and to us inaudible sound waves that reach its ears are real, that the abrupt change in its flight is real, that the swoop down towards the ground with its claws first is real, that the mouse that the claws dig into is real, that the red of the blood against the grey-white of the mouse's pelt is real as the wings beat and the owl rises through the darkness and in between the tree trunks, which a moment later it vanishes among. And I, I think it would be reductive and unhelpful to for me to start commenting on that, ex except to say that it feels like a kind of incantation. And I want to I wanna just leave it there. I wanted to ask you, like going back to my struggle, right? Yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> there's some very funny stuff in there about when, you know, first of all, your, your band when you were in middle school and, but just this sense that, um, and I think I, I've, seen this in a couple of places in your writing, this long-standing sense, which I think is common to artists, this feeling that you wanted to do something great in the world, like from a young age, right? And first you had this band and your band was terrible and you, you guys couldn't really, you know, play guitar in any original way. But there was this aspiration and this drive, right? So you've done this incredibly, this thing that by all measures of the literary world, right, is undeniably great. You, It's super successful. People all over the world are reading it, have read it. Did it get you what you wanted <laughs> when you were 15? Uh, um, in a way, yeah. Uh, in a way, I can think of that. I mean, maybe, you know, when I was in my 20s and really wanted to write and couldn't write and really, really thought that I lacked talent. I had not, you know, I didn't have the, the um, yeah, what it took to be a writer. I had friends who become poets and friends who become novelists, but I was the one who, you know, couldn't, couldn't do it. So if I think about that, yeah, that's, that's given me great satisfaction, but, but also uh, what I can take out of this, my struggle, whole my struggle project was, was so many pages is that, it finally become easy to write, you know, it's, that's the, that's the greatest thing mm. that I just, there's no, I don't feel any pressure anymore. I don't feel any, uh, you know, need to please anyone. I feel much freer in my writing, uh, not because gotcha. of the reception of it, but just because I did it. It was like when I wrote that, it was fucked to everyone and everybody and everything I know about literature. I'm just <laughs> writing, I'm just writing, you know, and, and that was what I took out of it basically. 
Uh, and that is such a great thing for a writer to be able to write. You were pushing force, you were pushing through to, to get somewhere with this practice of writing for, for the sake of how it makes you feel and how it makes you live in the world. And you got where you, you got there. Yeah, but I didn't know. I, did, I never knew that and I didn't think I would. <laughs> and then it was very different there uh, because it's what it was. And the clue is that, you know, I've been, always been a reader. I've always been reading a lot mm. when, since I, I was a child. I always loved that. And it was when I discovered that writing is like reading. It's a place you just disappear for yourself and you just, you know, you, you are almost selfless in there. That's the place and that's the, what writing is about for me. And it was when those two things, those two lines crossed, then I became a writer. Then I could do my first novel. How about editing? Because for me anyway, like when I'm writing, editing is the one thing that you know, writers are always telling you, you finally have to come to terms with, right? You have to finally get good at taking your own writing, looking at it and saying, is this crap? Is this good? Tearing yeah. it apart, rewriting it, blah, blah, blah. But that part never feels like the flow to me. It never feels like what you're describing, that sort of, no. you know, easy spiritual flow. No, in my experiences, um, I've, I've had periods twice with five years with writer's block. I couldn't write. Mm -hmm. And, and that, was, that was when I tried to, you know, to write good sentences and try to form it and try to kind of edit while I was writing. But I was trying and I was pushing. And then after those five years, when I could write, then it was like I have, it was already done. I didn't have to mm. do anything. It was what's on the page was what it become and it was just to go on it's much more like an improvisation like uh you know if if you have a musician or a band which is just improvising and playing right th that's more like it you can't edit them it, you can't go back and replace it this is what it is you know and and but that that's true also with these shorter pieces in the season yeah they are books. almost nothing is done with them it's almost you know it's okay. it, what i wrote it's it's what's there few minor changes here and there but that's that's it and but that you know that takes took me five years of trying to write and then you could write and then if i have to do something new i have to do the same process it will be a few years of failing and then probably uh -huh. hopefully it will become <laughs> so, something so you sort of you sort of edited in in advance yes in exactly way. i think uh, so yeah, that's yeah that's interesting all right I think that in the interest of time, we probably should move to the second part of the show. Big Think has big archives of video interviews. We're going to watch a few, a couple surprise short clips out of there, which are just meant to springboard conversation here the same way toothbrushes or owls might do. So let's watch the first one. Neuroscientist Eric Kandel talking about the beholder's response to paintings. We don't have a deep understanding of the beholder's response, but it's interesting that if you put together what we know from disorders of brain function and the normal physiology, we begin to understand in outline what the beholder's response is. And this is so important because in 1906, when Freud was active 
and Klimt Kokoschkin, surely these artists were active. Uh, there was a major person at the Vienna School of Art History called Alois Riegel. And he said, the problem with art history is it's going to go down the tubes because it's too anecdotal, it's too descriptive, it doesn't have enough of a science base. It's got to become more scientific. And the science it should relate itself to is psychology. And the key problem that it should address right off is the beholder share. You have a painting, that painting is not complete until the viewer responds to it. It's obvious once you say it, you know, this is why it was painted in the first place. But he pointed out this has become more explicit in the history of art. If you look at Renaissance art, particularly early Renaissance art, um, it's very interdirected. Uh, and he points to a uh, painting in Florence of the Trinity uh, in Santa Maria Novelli, painted by Masaccio, which has one of the early paintings to show you a wonderful sense of perspective. You see Christ in the cross, you see Mary and Joseph, they're turning toward him. God is above, he looks down. The two donors at the side, they look in, they're all looking at Christ. It's a very interdirected picture, and it doesn't really recruit the involvement of the beholder dramatically. But as art evolved, particularly when you move to Dutch art, which Riegel was very impressed with, you see that there's a conscious attempt on the part of the painter to paint people who look at you, who interact with you. And that made him aware of the fact of how important the beholder was and to try to understand how does the beholder's response works. He had two very gifted students, Ernst Chris and Ernst Gombridge, and they began to put this on a really rigorous basis. Ernst Chris said, great works are great because they're ambiguous. They allow for alternative readings. So you and I look at that Masaccio painting, we would have somewhat different responses to it. Um, which means that the beholder share varies for each of us because we see somewhat different things in the painting. Now, what does that mean? He said, if that means that beholder share varies, that means you and I must be creating different images in our brain about that particular portrait. So even though you and I are looking at the same object in the world, we're creating slightly different visual impressions in our mind, emotional impressions in our mind by looking at this. And they began to document it. First he and then Gambit showed you how you can trick the mind into alternate interpretations with illusions of various kinds. And they began to realize that when you look at a painting, you're undergoing a creative experience that is at least an outline similar to the painter. The painter ex exercises a dramatic amount of creativity in doing a portrait. But you yourself generate a fair amount of creativity in reconstructing it in your head and reconstructing it in a way that is unique for you and slightly different for me. Um, I know that you, Carlo Ve, that you, know, you write a fair amount about paintings and your relationship with visual art. Maybe, yeah. maybe you could just, we could start there talking about what associations this brings up for you. 
Um, yeah, the first thing I was thinking about is what it is to see, what it is to see something. And I thought of a, a very interesting right. conversation I had with, I was in Germany and I met a, a German gallerist. And he, in his youth, he had this uh, accident with fireworks, so he was blind. So, okay. and he had operations, and, 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 but at a point he had like 10% view or something. Uh, so he could basically couldn't see anything. And I asked him how that was, if you could explain what it is to see how the world looks like that when you when you see so you know little and vaguely and he said well if you get a glimpse of something for instance a glass of water you would know it is a glass of water and the brain would make that into a glass of water so you see a glass of water because what you see is what you know you see and i've read a lot about you know neuro uh, scientific popular science books about about the brain and about what it is to look and i'm i'm completely fascinated by it because when you see something the information you know goes into to, to the center back in the brain uh, but really in the process of seeing right. it's coming as much from that and out that it is coming in i mean it is released if you see something something you know is released so we see what we know we see and that's the struggle of painting that's what the painters have to struggle with so the first thing they have to do if you paint something is to remove and to remove and to remove and to remove all the things they know and try to see you know beneath that you know to get a, a more um, direct connection with with the thing with the object and that's what modernist painting is very much about i mean Cezanne and, and especially maybe van gogh is very interesting here because he he, I think, is the one who made made it, you know, almost break through somehow. That's that's a very interesting field, and it is related to what it is to see, and what it is to. They were talking yeah. about, you know, how much is in the beholder, and what should a painting do? Should it confront it? Should it confirm it? Should it? When you see a painting, you see colors, you know, and if you see the color blue, there isn't any ambiguity it isn't that it means something but it evokes something in you you know which is kind of could be a bottomless thing you could look at a painting for hours and just you know immerse yourself into it and and colors has that effect it is no boundaries in colors and then you have the the forms which is the boundaries and which is the concepts and and when those two things right. makes it makes looking at a good painting like an almost endless exercise you could do you know because it never stops and it isn't about meaning. It isn't about anything like that. It's, it's on a different level, I think. What's interesting is that it's. it seems like the mind is always trying to catch up, the, that there's a sort of a like a seven-year-old in the mind that is always kind of trying to get the jump on whatever attempt the artist might make to subvert your expectations of something so that, you know, the seven-year-old in the mind is like, that's a house, that's a person. Oh, that, that, that's, that's, uh, you know, pointillism. We're always in a way, if we're not careful or if we're not deliberately somehow subverting that instinct in ourselves, we're always catching up and getting ahead of that, the artist's strategic attempts to subvert our kind of inability to see by putting labels on everything. Yeah, and I think art and writing is the opposite of labeling. It is the opposite. I mean, if you write about identity, it's easy to say, you know, giving the identity marks you have. But then that's a label and that's a 
and the writing is about you know going beneath that and open it up and 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 make it into the complex unity it really is you know but we need those unities and we need those labels to survive practically in the world if you stop right. if you stop meditation you know to, to meditate over things to try to see things and it, it will be all you will be fucked you will be stuck in in the world so we have to have those things but we don't have to buy into that this is the world you know no but i i discovered that when i started writing my struggle and that was very personal because i i I didn't appreciate life. I didn't appreciate the world. And I realized this is insane. You know, this is, I have three children. I'm a writer. I do what I want, you know, and, and still the world feels gray. It's like, and it feels meaningless somehow. Mm. And that was the starting point for my struggle. That was, I have to, you know, find out how did I get here to this place and, and by writing and, and by reading and by looking at art. It is more to re-establish the way it should be, to re-establish the way I really should be in the world, you know, like I was when I was 10 or 12 or whatever. This this comes up in winter uh, for sure. This And you mentioned nostalgia as well in book one that I've read of my struggle. You know, I sometimes see this kind of explicit longing for an innocence and openness etc. of childhood. But then I think to myself, as I'm reading your work, but you have that. I mean, that's in the writing. I feel it. No, but I'm trying to write into a kind of a presence, I think. You know, this is now mm. I'm starting to sound like a mindful mindfulness, <laughs> you know, teacher of some kind. But that but but that is that is that kind of presence. And in that mm. presence I want to see try to find out you know, what it all of this is, you know, what is right. an owl, what is, is a fox, what is it? And by doing that and doing it on the same level, I, I also try to reduce uh, the importance of humanity, the importance of our culture, just to see the things and, and animals and try to see that we are just a part of all of this, you know. And that's very hard to do in a language right. because it right. is, it is, you know, it is very much in the middle of what we are. But still, that's that's something I, I want to do, and I can't do that in my own head. I have to write it somehow. Interestingly, in your writing, and I think in successful painting, the one way that artists uh, subvert that tendency to label and that sort of way that we get locked into our own ways of not seeing things uh, is by getting closer and closer to their own subjectivity. That somehow by, you know, writing my struggle, writing all those six volumes, going that deep into your mind's way of seeing the world, you enable the reader to come out of themselves. Yeah, it is. It's very many paradoxes in this but but i do <laughs> i do think that one way getting out of yourself is to go in inwards because i think the, the closer you get the further you get inwards the more we are alike somehow and and mm -hmm. I, I think we are much much more alike than we normally like to admit or to think you know but still it is exactly also the subjectivity that makes it possible right. to see that, you know, that we are alike, then you have to be extremely subjective to be able to see that. 
there is a, a, a Norwegian poet who wrote a poem and it's very simple and it's about um, the painter Edvard Munch and he's just saying many people have painted oaks still Munch painted an oak we have to reinvent the world and we have every every generation has to do that somehow I mean it's very weird it's weird that it's weird that by 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 effectively presenting the, the world from your own idiosyncratic perspective, you somehow enable, you somehow trip up other people's mental mechanisms, making it possible for them to see the commonalities and the connections. Like that's, that's just strange. It is very strange. And I thought when I started <laughs> to write the book, I, I, I thought this is, you know, this is purely for me and nobody would be interested at all because it's, it's such an idiosyncratic thing and it is such an idiosyncratic story, but the opposite was true, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah. Um, let's watch the second um, yeah. video. This is Stephen Kotler um, talking about uploading your mind and uh, immortality. He's a, he's a journalist. face of immortality, morality is going to radically change, right? We've evolved to die. Like for the entire history of life on this planet, life has come to an end. There is nothing in our consciousness, there's nothing period out there that says this is how you behave if you live forever. This is how you start to structure a society if I can store my personality on a computer. This is, this is what I do if I can store that personality onto a computer and download it into another body. These are huge, far-flung, really strange questions, right? And they seem totally science fiction at this point, but everything we've seen over the past 25 years, right, is most of the science fiction canon from the 20th century has turned into science fact in the 21st century already. So this 21st century sci-fi idea of mind uploading it's probably going to be here by the 22nd century. So we've got 50 years, 70 years to start figuring out these really complicated, hard questions. The idea in mind uploading is that we can store ourselves on silicon. We can upload our personalities, our brains, some part of our consciousness onto computers, and they can stay around forever. It is a far out there technology, for sure. Even though British Telecom was working on it, even though people are working on it, it's very early days. Ray Kurzweil has famously kind of pegged the date when we're going to have to deal with this problem is 2045. That may be really, really enthusiastic. I think it's a conservative prediction. But the point is, at some point in this century, this is probably going to get real. And you got to stop and you got to go for, you know, all five of the world's major religions. Just, just start there. Use the threat of the hereafter, right? What's going to happen after this life to steer morality and shape behavior. So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality is the big kind of metaphysical question. If you look at the science fiction work of Richard K. Morgan, who's fantastic, he talks about what happens when consciousness becomes downloadable and bodies become expendable and what that means for soldiers and armies and mercenaries and things along those lines. So there's really like a gritty cyberpunk underbelly to the mind uploading technology, even though it's being developed for educational purposes. So we can preserve the brains of the Einsteins and the Beethovens and the Richard Feynmans of the world and really kind of get inside them. But it's sort of like, I think of it like television, right? When they created television, they thought it was going to be used for educational purposes. That was the only, that's the creator of TV. What do you think this will be good for? Well, education, of course. 50 years later, there's not much education. There's a whole lot of crap. And I think we could see the same thing with mind uploading. 
But the difference, of course, is that mind uploading storing selves on silicon, even teetering on the edge of so-called immortality, changes everything about what it means to be human at a really fundamental deep level. And when I say fundamental deep level, I mean we're kind of, we're starting to muck around and mess around with evolutionary processes. Processes we have no idea what happens if you interrupt them because we've never done it before. Yeah, so um, that's a lot of ideas all at once. Um, we can start anywhere with this, but what, what, what came to my mind or what interests me is this question of what immortality might do to morality, like how people's behavior would change if we lived forever. Now, to me, this sounds like, this sounds like a really, really nightmare. This sounds like the worst thing <laughs> that could happen, you know, this is, sounds like the biggest threat to to everything I like and everything I believe in and everything it is to be human. And and a life without death would be it would be completely meaningless because it is the fact that we that we are leaving this world, it is that which giving its its value, a very much of its value. And the thing that we're passing that world on to our children and they are onto their children and that way of thinking is is, you know, is is so basic in me and in us that I think I can't even start to think how it will change if that wasn't here. I mean, he said they will change in, in, in yeah, humanity, but yeah. it would be something different. It would be something else. And we wouldn't be human. It would be something else. I, I find it terrifying, too, not because of the idea of, you know, legacy and passing things on to my, my child. Uh, I have a son... Um, uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily think in those terms, but I, but, but for me, everything about being human and about coming to terms with living in the world is about accepting impermanence and change. It is. And it is, um, what it is a collective thing, you know, which is, is the, the cultural development, uh, the, the changes in society, the, all the way we have gone since, you know, the Greeks or, or. Right. Is is a collective thing, and and if and that's the that's the fascinating thing and interesting thing, and and you are born into it, and you stay in for it maybe eighty years, and then you leave it, and then somebody else will enter it and leave it. That's the that's the thing that would just disappear, and everything will be in in one person. You know, it's like an initiation everyone. I feel like beings would arrive at a point of of weariness where morality would break down because you would be overwhelmed with with time or something and yeah. so you would just start creating problems to i don't know entertain yourself i feel like it would corrupt people yeah um yeah, i think so too but well, i can't see any can't see any value in it i mean not <laughs> okay so if they offer it to us we can refuse hopefully and hopefully it'd still be possible <laughs> to commit suicide indeed <laughs> Un unplug ourselves that possibility that freedom yeah absolutely so i don't feel any obligation to end this show on a cheerful note so i think we can we can leave it leave it there with the that human freedom i i want to thank you again for coming on think again today uh carlo it's been wonderful talking with you thank you very much it was a pleasure thank you a great pleasure 
And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Um, I think it's a good time to ask again for emails. If you guys want to write to me um, at jason at bigthink.com. Anybody who is new to the show or you've been listening for a while and you want to share how you listen, where you listen, why you listen, what you liked about a particular show, anything at all, honestly. And let me know also whether you're okay with me sharing an excerpt uh, here, because I will do that uh, in the coming episodes. We'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join us.